most of you here know Charles Raymond. And if you don't, you should get to know him. He's a great guy. His company is a building company. They, they build buildings. In fact, they take, they take an architect's design and they turn it into a real building, which always seems like magic to me. Now, to carry that task from inception to completion, especially in this day and age, they have to work through a bureaucratic maze of building codes and zoning ordinances and permits. They work with suppliers and brick masons and electricians and plumbers and heating and air conditioning contractors and on and on. And I'm sure that Charles could add many pages to that description of complexity. And they have to manage that whole process so that they come in on schedule, in budget, and can make a decent profit. Now let's say you're an IT guy like I used to be, and Charles walks up to you one day and he hands you a big pile of blueprints and he says, we're a little short-handed, so here, take care of this for me. Keep me posted, you've got 18 months to turn it into a building. Now, of course, Charlie would never do that because he knows what it actually takes to get from blueprints to a building, and he knows very well that I couldn't pull it off. <laughs> but how about this scenario? How about if God came to you one night while you were brushing your teeth, and he appeared to you in a vision, and he said, I have a task for you. You are hereby appointed to be my ambassador to a world that doesn't know me and doesn't care much for me. You will be the salt that causes men to thirst after me. You will be the light that causes men to see me rightly, that points them to the one and only way of access that I have provided for men to be able to, to stand in my presence. And you'll be working together with all my other ambassadors. There are all kinds of different people. They have different backgrounds and different skill sets and different gifts, and a lot of times they don't see things the same way. But you'll need to work with them with one mind and with one purpose to do what I have tasked you to do. And since this assignment is all about you representing me rightly, the most important piece of the assignment is you are to be holy as I am holy. Now, would that be a more comfortable, more doable assignment than the one that, that we talked about first? Hardly. <laughs> now, unless you're one of Charlie's project managers, you won't have to worry about him handing you that first assignment. But if you're a redeemed son or daughter of God, God has already handed you the second assignment. It's yours. So how are you planning to go about fulfilling it? Zerubbabel, the governor of the returned exiles of Judah in Jerusalem, had been given a sacred task to rebuild the temple of Yahweh in the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah's fifth night vision, recorded in the passage that we just read, is God's word to Zerubbabel about how he is to get that job done. And what God says to him he is saying to us, so we need to be paying attention. Now, the cast of characters in this fifth vision is narrow in scope. There are only two, two parties that are represented here directly. Zechariah, the prophet, and the angel 
who is his angelic tour guide. Uh, this angel was spoken of in the first uh, of the visions as well. The angel, he calls him the angel who was speaking with me. Now, Zerubbabel is not actually in the vision per se, but he is the object of this vision. He's the one that this information being given to Zechariah is supposed to end up going to. I want to first show you a structural outline of the passage so that you can just see how it's laid out. And I'm going to go more thematically than structurally with the rest of the message, but I want you to see how it's laid out. First, in verses 1 through 3, is the vision of the golden lampstand and the two olive trees. And there's a little bit of important detail added in verse 12 about that what, what Zechariah sees in that, in those images. Then there's a conversation between Zechariah and the angel about the meaning of those symbols that he just beheld. And that conversation covers the rest of the chapter in two parts, two rounds of question and answer. The first question and answer in verses 4 through 10 starts with Zechariah's question. What are these things? And he's really asking what these things mean. Then the angel challenges and says, do you not know what they mean? And then comes the angel's answer when Zechariah says, no, I don't. And that is, this is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. Then, right at the end of the chapter, is the second round of question and answer. Zechariah asks him again, what's the meaning of these two olive trees and the two olive branches that are plumbed in to this lampstand? And the angel again challenges him and says, do you not know? And Zechariah says, no, Lord, I don't. And so the angel gives him the answer. These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. You look at the, the colors I put up there, you can see that it's, it's a very clear repeated pattern. All right. Now first, what are the objects that the angel shows Zechariah in this vision? He sees a golden lampstand. And that lampstand is unusual. It has a bowl suspended over the top of it somehow. And there are seven spouts or pipes that connect that bowl to each of the seven individual lamps or lights on the lampstand. He also sees two olive trees, and he describes the olive trees as being on the right and the left of the bowl. Even though the bowl is part of the lampstand, he describes them on each side of the bowl. So he's drawing attention to the connection between the olive trees and the bowl. You with me there? Okay. Finally, in verse 12, there's a little bit of extra information added, and it is that, that there are two additional pipes that connect the olive trees with the bowl. So you've got quite a lot of plumbing there for a lampstand. It's not your typical lampstand. After taking in this scene of this very unusual lampstand and, tr and the trees that were on each side of it, Zechariah understandably asked the angel to explain what they mean. He says, what are these? And he doesn't mean, I need an instant replay because I missed something there. He means, I see this, but I don't know what it means. But the angel's response isn't what Zechariah was hoping for. Zechariah, the, the angel says to Zechariah, don't you know 
what these things mean? Now, the first time I looked at that, I thought maybe it was just sort of a a way for the angel to point out to Zechariah that things like this are spiritually appraised. And of course he doesn't know what they mean. But upon looking further, I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think the angel is rebuking him gently for not knowing. Because when the angel gives his answer, he doesn't tell him what these things mean. Specifically, he doesn't go back to the symbols. In fact, in the angel's first answer in verses 6 through 10, none of those symbols is even mentioned. He's assuming that the symbols are understood and he's proceeding to explain the point of the symbols. Now, if that's right, then Zechariah must have had some kind of precursor, some kind of prior knowledge that should have helped him understand what was going on. So the angels tell him, look, think about this a little bit. What precursor would Zechariah have known about that might have helped him understand this? Well, the obvious one is the lampstand in the tabernacle. Now, that's kind of hard to see, but within the tabernacle and later within the temple, in the holy place that also included the table of showbread and the altar of incense, the room that was just outside of the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory of God resided, where the Ark of the Covenant resided, in that room called the holy place was the lampstand. Now that original lampstand was fairly simple. It had seven oil lamps and seven cups to hold the oil, one for each lamp. Now what was the point of that original lampstand in the tabernacle? This is often debated. Every object in that tabernacle pointed to something. It was a representation of something that ultimately ties to Jesus Christ and foreshadows Jesus Christ. Something about Christ. What did the lampstand represent? Well, first, in order to understand what it represented, you have to know what it did. And that's pretty simple, right? In Exodus 25:37. And the instructions to the priests who were putting all this together by God's design, it simply says that the priest shall mount its lamp so as to shed light on the space in front of it. (laughs) In other words, at the most practical level, this lampstand did what all lampstands do. It provided light for the space in which it sat. And that space was the holy place. The first room into which the priest entered as he drew near to the holy presence of Yahweh. The tent fabric that made up the covering over the top and walls of the tabernacle was very thick, very valuable fabric, and there were four layers of that fabric. And they extended all the way to the ground. So if there was no source of light inside the holy place, it would have been pitch black. The only other very faint source of light would have been the coals from the, uh, the glow of the coals from the altar of incense. So the priest couldn't have even seen what he was doing without some light. So in both a, a physical and a figurative sense, the lampstand illuminated the way of access to the presence of God. I believe based on the way light and lamps, the way those two images are used throughout both testaments, the light of the lampstand represented both the revelation that God has made known of Himself and the testimony or proclamation of that revelation 
by his people to other men. I'll talk about that a little bit further, but the lampstand itself was not the light. The lampstand was the bearer of the light. In John 1, John said of Jesus, in him was the life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. And then he goes on to say, no man has seen God at any time. The unique Son of God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He has made Him known. Jesus is the preeminent light. He is the perfect revelation of the Father. But what is the bearer of that light? What is the lampstand picture? We are the bearer of the light. We as the people of God are the ones who bear the revelation of God to men. Israel was called to bear the light of the knowledge of God. They were called to be a kingdom of priests through whom God would make Himself known to all the peoples of of the world, all the nations. They were to display God to men. In the New Testament, the church of Jesus Christ made up of both Jews and Gentiles is the light bearer. In Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 14 through 16, what is it that Jesus says we must not hide under a bushel basket, but that we must instead put on the lampstand that it might give light to all who are in the house? It is the revelation of God, of Jesus Christ. Jesus then in that passage equates our assignment to display the light with the testimony that our words and our works bear of God's revelation of Himself. That's what we're not supposed to keep under the bushel. We're supposed to display the light that God has put in us. Likewise, in Revelation 1, just before the letters to the seven churches, one of those was mentioned in the worship, In Revelation 1, John sees a vision of Jesus standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. In Revelation 1.20, Jesus tells John the Apostle, these seven lampstands are the seven churches. They're the light bearers. Then in the first letter, the letter to the church at Ephesus, what is it, what is it that the Lord says will get removed if the church doesn't repent and return to their first love and to the deeds that they did at first. It is their lampstand. It is the opportunity for them to display God to men. The light that shone forth from the golden lampstand in the tabernacle pictured the light of the knowledge of God. The lampstand was the bearer of that light as the people of God are the bearers of the true light. So if if that's what the lampstand in the tabernacle was all about, what is this lampstand about that the angel is showing Zechariah? Well, I believe it's about the same thing. But there's a major shift of focus in this vision. This next point is very important. This vision didn't focus on the light. It didn't even focus on the lampstand. It focused on the power source for the light. It backs up two critical steps from the light itself 
And it focuses on what makes the light possible. The fuel. If we're looking just at the symbols in the vision, this vision focuses on the oil. The overwhelming emphasis of the detailed imagery in this vision is on how the oil gets to the lamps to produce light. Where it comes from and how it gets from the source to the individual lamps. And that's the key to understanding the meaning of everything else in this chapter. Both the mechanism for getting the oil to the lamps and the source of the oil were very different for this lampstand than they were for the lampstand in the tabernacle. There were three prominent differences. This lampstand in Zechariah's vision has one central oil vessel or reservoir. Verse 2 says the bowl was situated on the top of it. In contrast, as I said, the lampstand in the in the old tabernacle and temple had just one cup for each lamp. Furthermore, this unusual lamp has seven spouts or pipes through which the first big bowl transferred its oil to the base of each of the seven seven lights. Now, there are different views on the interpretation of the number of pipes. Some say there's seven per lamp, so there'd be 49 pipes. That would be a serious plumbing mess, but anyway... Uh, wh- whatever it is, the point, the, the, the functional point is the same. As long as there was sufficient oil in the main reservoir, gravity took care of the rest without human intervention. The third, the, uh, third, well, yeah, the second unusual point was the seven pipes, okay? And the third unusual feature was the presence of the two olive trees, one on each side of the bowl, plumbed into the bowl, feeding the bowl with olive oil. It talks about the two pipes in verse 12 that empty the gold, which is pretty universally accepted as a reference to the gold-colored olive oil, the pure olive oil, into that main reservoir. By contrast, again, the tabernacle lampstand had none of that plumbing. The priest had to manually replenish the oil in each of the seven lamps every morning and every evening so that the lamps would burn continually day and night. And that is all explained in Exodus 27, verses 20 and 21. In his commentary on this passage, Merrill F. Unger says, these three unique features of Zechariah's lampstand stressed its automatic and spontaneous supply of oil for lighting without human agency. The lampstand received a constant supply of oil. And not because Israel provided the oil, as they did for the tabernacle, and not because the priests came in and did anything with the lampstand. Before we go any further, let's talk a little bit about oil. Aside from its many uses in preparing food, the oil served four sacred purposes under the Old Covenant. First was anointing for consecration for the setting apart for service of the utensils and the holy objects in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Setting them apart for sacred use and infusing them with a sanctity, with the sacredness unto God. That In fact, they were so set apart to God that no human hand could ever touch them once they were consecrated. The only thing that ever got to touch those objects after they were consecrated was the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. That's it. Secondly, 
anointing for consecration of the high priest to serve as the mediator between God and His people in the tabernacle worship. And then anointing for consecration of the king whom God chose to rule over His people. The fourth sacred use for oil was fuel for the flames of the lampstand in the holy place that illuminated the way of access to the presence of Yahweh. Now, let's see if we can put some of those together. The first three uses all have to do with setting something apart for God and and imparting to it or infusing it with usefulness to God, with, with sanctity and with power. There were only two offices that required anointing by oil among men, the office of high priest and the office of king. In the ceremony known as anointing, what did the oil symbolize? If you look at 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, where King David, as a boy, was anointed to be God's chosen king, what immediately happened to David after Samuel took the horn of oil and poured it over the head of David? It says, the Spirit of Yahweh came mightily on David from that day forward. So if the oil was the symbol, what was the substance? The Holy Spirit. What was it that was actually being poured out on King David to enable and empower him to serve as king? The Holy Spirit. And what happened to the person being anointed by the, by the Spirit when the Spirit was poured out upon him? Well, the same thing that happens to an oil lamp when you feed it oil. It is fueled. It is empowered. It is enabled to do what it was designed by God to do. And that's the connection. All four of the sacred uses of oil under the law of Moses present oil as the power source. Bear that in mind as the context for understanding what the angel then says to Zechariah about this very unusual lampstand. After the angel gently scolds Zechariah for not making connections, he doesn't condescend to give Zechariah a detailed explanation of these symbols. He just goes directly to the point, to the lesson of the symbols, starting in verse 6. And his words might be surprising at first because, as I said, they don't even mention the symbols. It's almost like he's changing the subject, but he's not changing the subject. He says, this, what you just saw, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. Now, who is this man, Zerubbabel, that God had raised up at this point in Judah's history to act as ruler, to govern these exiles who had come back after 70 years of captivity in Babylon? He may seem like a fairly insignificant character. You don't hear a lot of people naming their kids, their boy, boy children, Zerubbabel. But he is anything but significant in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 tells us that Zerubbabel was a direct descendant of King David. And so, in terms of his physical lineage, he was a rightful heir to the throne of David. 
And in each generation of that genealogy, there was only one man who was in that line. Any other children of that man's parents were outside of the line that led to Messiah, to Jesus Christ. But Zerubbabel is directly in that line that leads to Messiah. Just months before Zechariah was given these visions, God had spoken through another prophet, Haggai, and had told Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah and Jerusalem, and Joshua, the high priest, to resume rebuilding the temple that they had started trying to rebuild 18 years earlier. That that rebuilding project had been halted because of severe opposition by the people, the other people in the city of Jerusalem. You can look at Ezra chapter 4 and Haggai 1. At the end of his oracle to Zerubbabel, Haggai delivered these words from God to the governor of Judah. He said, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations, and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. And then he says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet, a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord. Those are powerful words. The king's signet ring was the mark of his sovereign authority. In Genesis 41, verse 42, when Pharaoh decreed that Joseph would be second in command over all of Egypt, that all of the people, not only of Egypt, but of all the subservient nations around Egypt, would answer to him, Pharaoh took the signet ring off of his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand. Because that meant Joseph had his authority. Through Haggai, God told Zerubbabel that he would make him like a signet ring chosen by God and called God's servant. In the last chapter, chapter 3, we saw that Joshua the high priest in Zechariah's day was a foreshadowing. He is called the symbol, a foreshadowing of the perfect high priesthood of Jesus Christ. The one that God called my servant, the branch. And Zerubbabel is a foreshadowing of the perfect kingship, kingship of Jesus In the near term, God chose Zerubbabel to act as his servant, his signet who would stand in God's place to govern his people. And God assigned to Zerubbabel the sacred task of completing the reconstruction of his temple. But in the long view, Zerubbabel was a foreshadowing of the perfect king who would come to judge all the nations and rule over all the nations and put down kings and kingdoms in order that his name might be exalted. Zerubbabel is a type or shadow of Jesus Christ. Now this vision that God gave to Zechariah is called by the angel the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel. The vision of a lampstand that received its oil, its power source, without human intervention, was to be Zechariah's word picture to Zerubbabel to tell him how God would enable and empower him to fulfill his sacred calling. And in a nutshell, the how 
is right there in verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The angel goes on to say on God's behalf, What are you, O mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain. If God is for us, who can be against us? There would be nothing that could stand in the way of God's intention to use Zerubbabel for the purposes to which He had called him. God promised that He would get to finish what He started. Verse 7 says that the top stone, the capstone, the last stone that finishes the construction of the temple would be laid by Zerubbabel's own hand. And when it was laid, he and all the congregation of Israel would cry out, grace, grace to it. Isn't that great? They wouldn't cry out, hail Zerubbabel, look what you accomplished. No, they would cry out, grace, grace. Because they would be acknowledging that every bit of what had been done was by the hand of God. By His gracious doing. Not by might. Not by power, but by My Spirit. Verse 9 says, Then when this happens, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent Me to you. And I believe at that point, the person speaking is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel, angel of Yahweh who was spoken of in previous visions. Now verse 10 has an interesting beginning. It says, Who has despised the day of small things? Well, God certainly has not despised the day of small things. It says the eyes of the Lord that go to and fro throughout the earth will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zechariah. This, this humble man who is in the process of constructing a humble facsimile of Solomon's amazing temple the people in Zerubbabel's day didn't have the access to the riches of Solomon. They had some, some things that Darius, King Darius had given to them. They didn't even have complete sovereignty as a nation. You can be very sure that they continued on a regular basis to pay tribute to Darius to stay in his good graces. But their God-given assignment was a sacred assignment. They were setting the stage not only for the return of the glory of God to the rebuilt temple, but they were setting the stage for the eventual return of the Lord God the Almighty and of the Lamb to be the temple of God in the midst of His people in His redeemed city among His redeemed people. Revelation 21, verse 22. Joshua and Zerubbabel were stagehands just like we are setting the stage for the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ. That's what we're here to do. That's what you are here to do. Don't despise the small things that are done by the hand of God. I don't believe that the historical events that God chose to memorialize in these chapters for His people were just temporary reminders that will be forgotten in the new heavens and the new earth. I believe they are eternal reminders that will be celebrated in the new heavens and the new earth. Just as every, every good thing of eternal value that God does through you will be celebrated in eternity. Whatever God fills your hand to do today, 
no matter how small it seems to you or to others. Do it to set the stage for His return. Whether it's changing your baby's diapers or showing kindness to a neighbor or constructing a building, do it with joy and do it with all your heart in order to show Jesus off to men to adorn the doctrine of our great God and Savior. Zechariah's second question, in effect, was, what is the meaning of these two olive trees and the two olive branches that empty into the golden bowl? Or gold into their golden oil into the bowl. The literal meaning of the words in the angel's answer, two anointed ones, he says these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. The two anointed ones means two sons of fresh oil. <laughs> so there's the oil again. If you put together the two visions in Zechariah 3 and 4, who would you think these two anointed men are that are pictured by the olive trees? Well, we saw earlier that the ceremony of anointing was reserved for two specific offices, high priest and king. That's it. Who was the high priest in office in Zechariah's day? Who was Joshua? Who was the king, the person serving in the role of ruler and governor over God's people in Zechariah's day? Zerubbabel. I believe that in the near-term fulfillment of this prophetic vision, they are the two sons of fresh oil, represented symbolically by the two olive trees whose branches provide a continuous flow of oil to the golden lampstand so that the light of the revelation of God will go forth continually. Those two men were anointed. They are sons of fresh oil. They were anointed by the Holy Spirit as their enabler, their power source, and they are the vessels of God as He transfers that same power to the light bearers, which are the people of God. But we saw in the previous chapter, previous vision in chapter three that in his high priestly role, Joshua was also, he was a symbol, a sign pointing to something greater, of someone greater. My servant, the branch. And Zerubbabel was a sign as well, of the same one. The one Jeremiah calls the righteous branch of David. He's talking about a king. Zerubbabel, this humble descendant of David and ancestor of Jesus, was himself a foreshadowing of Christ. He is a type of the perfect preeminent king of kings who came after him and who is coming again to judge all mankind and to establish his glorious kingdom. I make all of that point to simply finish out the beautiful picture of the lampstand and the oil trees, uh, and the olive trees. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. The olive trees ultimately, I believe, represent Jesus Christ, in whose name the Father sent the Spirit. Read John 14 and John 16. Acts 1, verses 7 and 8 records the final words of the resurrected Christ to His followers. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you shall receive what when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? Power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be 
my witnesses. You shall be my light bearers, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. We are the stagehands preparing the way for Christ's return. And until He returns, we are the lampstand. We are the light bearers with the sacred and wonderful task of showing Him off to a world that desperately needs Him. The light that we bear is the revelation of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the power that He has given us to act as those light bearers is His Holy Spirit. That's the power. That's all the power that we need. We will be opposed as Zerubbabel was opposed. We will struggle with our own grievous inadequacy for the task. But God never meant for us to be adequate for the task. His indwelling Holy Spirit is our one and only enabler. And that power that resides within us in the person of the Holy Spirit is amazing. It's the same power he is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, Romans 8.11, and seated Him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named both in this age and in the age to come. And so I'll close with uh, a little prayer that refers to that power. Not a power that has to do with what's outside of us that changes our situation, but a power that resides within us, that changes us, and that does exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And we'll let that be our closing prayer.